Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. So, it's been quite a week. And one of the things I thought very soon after the election returns came in was that I wanted to hear from some smart people who can tell us how we got here and then what the road ahead looks like. These are folks that have mostly been hidden from the spotlight during the campaign. Andrew McAfee was one of the people who would sometimes pop into my mind when I was listening to stump speeches on TV or the debates. He's talked for a long time, including on this show, about the idea of jobs disappearing. And I'm not just talking about jobs going to other countries, but jobs disappearing because of robotics and automation. But on the trail, the candidate seemed to almost completely ignore the data reality that he's been tracking for years. McAfee is a principal research scientist at MIT, and he's the co-author with Eric Brynjolfsson of The Second Machine Age, which was about this very phenomenon. We reached him in Lisbon at a conference, and he said he was struck by the exit polls that we've all been combing through since the election. When they asked people what the biggest issue was in the election or the thing they were most looking for in a candidate, almost 40 percent of the people said the ability to bring change was the most important thing they were looking for. And no surprise, uh, over 80% of the people said Donald Trump was the better candidate for that. His whole campaign was based around just shaking up the status quo deeply. And when I look at that, I imagine there are two things going on. One is this huge dissatisfaction that we have in general with institutions, everything from Congress to Wall Street to elections themselves. The turnout for this election was amazingly low. And maybe Silicon Valley is going to be included in that list of institutions that people don't trust anymore. The second thing that I really feel is going on, the kind of change people want is not the kind that we're getting. We're not living in a low change environment. There are these science fiction technologies coming at us the economy is being reshaped. There's a lot of change going on. I, I think what people might actually be yearning for is nostalgia, is a return to some flavor of good old days where there wasn't so much change. And when the economy was full of those great middle class American jobs, which happened in factories, in offices full of clerks, and really built up the American middle class. I sense a yearning to go back to that period. And unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. So, you know, this idea of, um, as you said, factories having fewer people in them, a lot of that being roboticized or automated, and that, that doesn't feel like the days when there were a lot of good, solid jobs that you could do with a high school education. Why was that not a part of the discussion in this election? I, I, I can't think of one question, and maybe I missed it, maybe I'm not remembering it, but I can't think of one question in a debate about like, gee, all these jobs are being automated. What problems does that create? What are you, presidential candidates, going to do about that? 
I think that all got subsumed into another explanation for all the jobs went, which is the immigrants took them and we exported them overseas. So I, the technology discussion, I agree, didn't really happen, but we absolutely had a jobs discussion. It was just missing a big part of the equation and the solutions being proposed were not going to work very well. Now, even if President Trump somehow succeeds in bringing back lots of manufacturing activity to the states, he can point to that. Those factories are just not going to be full of people doing classic middle-class American jobs at middle-class American wages. The products they produce would be completely uncompetitive. So do you feel like uh, the notion of your jobs went to China, they went to Mexico, we can bring them back, you know, make the darn iPhone in the U.S., make the cars, you know, do that stuff in the U.S., that, that can't happen? You, you could try. Uh, most of the measures you would use or that I heard uh, Trump propose would, would be ineffective and counterproductive. Starting a trade war is a really lousy way to help out American manufacturing. But let's say you got the environment exactly right and manufacturing activity did come back. You know, mm-hmm. we're seeing a little bit of reshoring of manufacturing already. That's not to say that we're seeing a huge increase in manufacturing employment. The factories that were building and spinning up these days in the country just don't have a whole lot of uh, labor inside them. To me, they look more and more like data centers, which are these huge operations full of machines and a small number of pretty, very well-trained, very well-qualified, pretty well-educated people, you know, manning the control booth. I didn't hear, though, either the media or the Democrats coming back at Trump and saying, well, we can bring the factories back from China and Mexico, maybe, but there aren't a lot of jobs left in those factories. That's not really a, a, a hopeful message, is it? It's not really a positive <laughs> counter to to the Trump argument. So this is a really difficult argument to make. And one of my frustrations is that the communities that I hang around in of economists and technologists, we were not helpful in this discussion. We have concentrated for too long on just extolling the virtues of tech progress and trade. And it's true that those are good things in aggregate, but we were not mindful enough of the people who feel left behind, um, betrayed, marginalized, that, that, or, or ripped off by, by the world that we're creating. And figuring out how to have that conversation is one of the great pieces of homework. Mm-hmm. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Andrew McAfee from MIT, co-author of the book, The Second Machine Age. One of the things that you've always said to me when we've talked about um, increasing technology in our lives and, you know, fewer sort of of these classic old school middle class jobs was that, you know, education was going to be the key uh, to having a really good job in the future. And... um, One thing you see is that uh, Donald Trump won non-college educated whites by about 40 points. I mean, just like a margin that blows you away. Do you feel like that kind of coming together of economics and education was in some ways the thing that got uh, Donald Trump elected? Yeah, it feels like there were a few factors going on. One of them is certainly this moment that we're at where the recovery from a really bad event that left a lot of people feeling like the system was rigged against them and the elites 
were enriching themselves and deliberately leaving everybody else behind. The recovery from that has been slow. It has not lifted all boats equally. And I think that creates really fertile territory for the kind of arguments that that Trump was putting out there. The question about what do we do about it? How do we have a productive discussion? What will actually improve the lot of those people is unfortunately a difficult, really complicated, you know, ambiguous, nuanced conversation. And the mood does not seem to be for those things. The mood seems to be for simplicity and for clearly identifying the problem and a simple solution. What is the solution for for those voters who felt like, you know, boy, they'd been displaced and they couldn't find the jobs they wanted? And and if you look at um, Trump voters, many of them said in exit polls that they believed the economy was fair or poor. Well, the unemployment rate is under 5%. So speaking to what you said before, we kind of have like two parallel economies going on. That is not how the economy feels to a lot of people. So what do you do? Yeah, and Kara, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, the playbook that, that Eric and I advocate is all about trying to increase rates of innovation because business dynamism, unfortunately, is on the decline in America. It is about doubling down and, and improving our infrastructure, which actually would be a source of the kind of classic, you know, brawny jobs that, that middle class Americans really uh, long for. Uh, it's about liberalizing immigration instead of clamping down on it because immigrants are clearly a source of entrepreneurial and business energy in the country. Um, it is about uh, investing more heavily in basic research. The, the problem is I've already just laid out kind of a long argument and one that is not guaranteed to immediately have us start winning so much we get sick of winning. Right. So <laughs> I, I understand how a, a really, really clear, simple argument repeated forcefully enough uh, makes a difference for a lot of people. The, I think the actual environment is, is more difficult and, and much more murky. Uh, when we last spoke uh, a couple months ago, you used the phrase, I think, profoundly optimistic when you were talking about the possible effects of automation, increasing automation. When you look back on that comment, do you still feel that way? I'm a little bit less optimistic, I have to be honest with you. I, am, I still firmly believe that these two tectonic forces of globalization and tech progress are reshaping the world in aggregate for the better. However, that doesn't mean that they leave everybody better off at every point in time in every aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in their capacity as folk who want to live by the good old-fashioned labor bargain and offer their labor and get a good life in return, that bargain you and I have discussed has become a lot chillier. I am less optimistic than I used to be that we can find a way to talk about that bargain in a better way and to restore that bargain uh, quickly enough to, to satisfy people. If we don't, then we're going to do, I think, really misguided things like become protectionist, clamp down, turn our backs on the world, uh, maybe start doing things like banning flavors of technology that we don't like. That's happened in the past, and I think it would be a terrible shame. What do you think that a Trump presidency means for innovation and, uh, you know, an entrepreneurship and inventiveness, all the kinds of things that you study and, and you sort of see around you all the time? I find that an almost impossible question to answer at this stage. Uh, I, I, I can't get inside Donald Trump's head. That is one place I absolutely do not have access to. Uh, he 
he's been pretty consistently pro-business, at least in the way he talks about it. But as a test case, I, I don't know what's going to happen if his basic constituency, you know, the, these these classic white, less educated Americans, start to not like driverless cars, for example, because they can see that it's going to put truck drivers out of business. I, I, I honestly, I have no idea which way a Trump administration would break on that issue. You talked about... Um that there's a lot of things we would have to do to, uh, you know, take the people who've been displaced and, and make sure there's a education and training and all that. How long is it going to take for us to get to the point where things are better and people don't feel betrayed and angry and sort of left out of the economy? That's that's a super difficult question to answer. And the only answers I, I can come up with are, kind of a long time. We have had how many months in a row of consistent job growth in the country? At least five or six years worth of steady month-by-month job growth. Our unemployment rate, even if we measure it imperfectly, is really low. Our economy is growing much more quickly than any other economy in the rich world. And yet we have this profound sense of unhappiness and resentment going on. So what would actually need to happen for the, the mood in the country to shift? Uh, that's, that's kind of difficult for me to imagine. And how quickly could that happen? Um, long time. Andrew McAfee is co-author of the book, The Second Machine Age. He's a founder of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Andy, thank you so much. Kara, always a pleasure. McAfee talked about a yearning to go back to a time when factory jobs were better and more plentiful, which, by the way, he doesn't think can happen. But a lot of people remember when those jobs were their reality. Bill Berry used to teach at the Community College of Baltimore County, and he's written about the history of Sparrows Point Steel Mill, which is not far from Baltimore. Back in its heyday, it employed 31,000 people. And he says a steelworker could bring in $140,000 a year. It was a great moment in America because you had good pay, uh, protection, and it was a tough job. But most jobs are tough jobs. Many people would start when they were 18. And I often said that the pattern you could graduate from high school on Friday, get married on Saturday, go to work at Sparrows Point on Monday. And your life was laid out for you. When the factory closed in 2012, the workers suddenly lost the clear path that was laid out in front of them. And Barry says Donald Trump spoke to that loss. What he did was, first of all, appear to be paying attention to them, which Hillary Clinton did not. And he captured their anger and frustration. And the language that Trump uses is almost identical to the language that Franklin D. Roosevelt used as he was running for election about the forgotten man. And I think that the people that I know felt a sense of betrayal, and they felt that they'd worked hard and had done all the things they were supposed to do, and now they're screwed. Barry says that a lot of Sparrows Point workers blame the closure of the plant on foreign steel, and they blame the federal government for not blocking foreign imports. 
he spent a lot of time training steelworkers to get other jobs, and some of them have been able to get work. But many are still struggling. There are tens of millions of people in this country I don't believe are ever going to work regularly again. The traditional pictures of the steel industry are people working with the huge flames in the background. And when I show the steel industry today, it's people sitting in a computer panel. And machines are doing all the work. Machines are doing all the work. But if you ask Barry whether he thinks Trump can deliver on his promises to turn old industries around, he's skeptical. I think he's sitting there saying, holy shit, what did I get myself into? It's easy to sit back and criticize people at this time because things are so tough for everybody. And it's easy to be negative, as he has proven, how to deal with those situations in a constructive way once you've got the responsibility is a whole different issue. He's about to find that out. Bill Berry is retired now, but he was once director of labor studies at the Community College of Baltimore County. We will be right back with more of our post-election special, but if you missed a part of this show and you want to hear the whole thing, you can find it on iTunes, or you can listen right off the website, innovationhub.org. One of the things that people talked about to some degree uh, during this campaign, but then a lot since it's been over, is the issue of how much bias factored in. How much did it matter, for example, that Hillary Clinton was a woman? And who did it matter to? There was also a long trail of racial comments that Donald Trump made during the campaign. Did those make a difference? Mazarin Banaji has done pioneering work looking at our implicit biases. So they're biases that we all have, but we don't necessarily know that we have them. She's a professor of psychology at Harvard and the co-author of Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. Mazarin, good to have you here. It's my pleasure, Cara. I I think the results of this election surprised a lot of people Did you have any sense from your work on implicit bias um, that a Trump victory was a real possibility? So when we saw the result uh, of the election and we saw that it went against what many polls uh, were predicting, we of course have to ask some questions about why the result was what it was. For example, is it possible that the pollsters just did not do a good job? Were they not? distinguishing between those who were going to vote and those who were not going to vote. Is it possible that people who said they were going to vote for Clinton actually voted for Trump Mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't feel comfortable telling others that they were likely to vote for Trump? These are all possibilities, Mm -hmm. and we won't know that soon and perhaps uh, never. From the perspective of the research that I've done, I would say that in every mind there are two sides. Uh, the side of us that makes us aspire to do the right thing, 
to evaluate candidates on the basis of merit, on experience, on the hard work they've done, and then evaluate who's going to be good for us, for the country, for our children, for the future. What the work that I've done shows is that we often set aside things that are in our own interest, mm. that we care not about the future of our planet, but about what we feel like today. And what this vote signals to me is that that more primitive side of our minds won out, that we didn't care that we were dealing with a well-documented set of lies. That did not matter to us. And that's important. Why did it not matter to us? And I think it's because in moments of uncertainty, in moments when the world changes as fast as globalization and technology is making the world change, when it changes that fast, it unnerves us. Now, I imagine that everybody who voted in the election, no matter who they voted for, would tell you they voted for the person who would help their jobs, who would help their kids, who would help their world. So why is their interpretation of what they did so different from your interpretation of what they did? We can all disagree about things that are matters of opinion. And I think people believe that what they did here is express an opinion about who they thought was the better candidate. But you and I also know that there are things called facts. And as Senator Moynihan said a long time ago, Everybody has a right to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. But because we disagree about what even the facts are, the two sides actually cannot speak to each other in this moment because we don't agree about the most fundamental facts. It, you and I, if we both agreed that climate change is happening and that humans are a part of what is causing climate change, you and I might disagree about the best solution to that problem. But if you and I do not agree about climate change itself, if I believe it's not happening and you believe it's happening, then we could not be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. you've, you've looked a lot at all sorts of studies that show that people very often look at women differently than they look at men. Very often that bias is not something that they're consciously aware of, but something that sort of slips in. And I should say, very importantly, women often have a bias against women, um, not just men against women. Do you think the fact that um, you know Hillary Clinton is a woman, that that factored in here to, you know, obviously, as you were saying, she was ahead in the polls going into this that didn't that didn't end up panning out. Is that a piece of this? First of all, you know, as a scientist, I should say that I can't say in any particular case, like the Clinton case, whether implicit or explicit bias, I mean, maybe explicit bias playing a role we can actually measure. We can ask people the question, uh, you know, did you not vote for her because she was a woman? And some small percentage of people probably will say yes. Right. But that percentage is so small, it can't actually account for the outcome. So let's say that explicit bias is not really the issue. The question of implicit bias is very tricky because by its nature, it is hidden. And so we cannot say in any given case like this election, whether it played a role, uh, and if it did, how much of a role mm -hmm. it played. But what we can say very clearly is that the research evidence shows that implicit bias does not favor women in the workplace. And so if you contrast the two sorts of views that we have of women, on the one hand, our attitudes or our, our liking, our feeling of warmth 
about women towards women, that's high. W the research evidence shows that it's not that we don't like women. It is that our minds are unable to associate them with the concept of things like power and leadership. Hmm. And I think Hillary Clinton may have suffered from the fact that she actually represented power and leadership, a quality that women are not typically associated with. And perhaps as a result of that, she suffered on the warmth dimension, that people could not mm. see her uh, as warm. I have to say that in this election, I was surprised by how little the gender question came up, how little the question of, is she fit to be president because she's a woman? It just did not come up that much directly. But we did see it come up indirectly in a variety of ways, right? She belongs to the very category of the people that he groped. She is the one, a couple years younger than him, who has to explain her stamina. So there were ways in which I think gender constantly uh, was in the shadows of the discussions that we were having, even though it wasn't explicitly there. And it made me, in a kind of a, a, a weird way, yearn for the early 80s when I worked on the campaign for Mondale and Ferraro, and I remember people explicitly saying that they would not want a female vice president. Hmm. And I almost felt a yearning for such a time when people were able to just tell us what they were thinking. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Mazrin Banaji, a professor of psychology at Harvard and co-author of the book Blind Spot. One thing we really saw when you look at the breakdown of votes um, in the presidential race was that people were very split along race and class lines. So working class whites were overwhelmingly supporting Trump, but working class African-Americans were overwhelmingly supporting Clinton. Now, both candidates were white. So explain how you see voter bias playing in here. So let's just think about a phenomenon that I'll call something like Brexit-Trump. <laughs> if we take Brexit and Trump okay. and we create Brexit-Trump, what accounts for Brexit-Trump is a very interesting set of variables. So we know in Brexit, and I think very similarly here, if you just sort of draw a line down the middle of a page and write down the standard sort of social hierarchies of the groups that people belong to, or experiences that they've had. You know that more men than women voted for Brexit. You know that more native-born people in England voted for Brexit rather than foreign-born. Hmm. You know that people who lived in uh, the suburbs are more likely to have voted for Brexit than those who lived in the cities. Right. You know that the people who did not own a passport were more likely to vote for Brexit than those who owned a passport. I think if you do a similar analysis in this country, you will see it fall out pretty much exactly that way. Hmm. Occasionally, you'll see something a little bit interesting, such as something I heard yesterday, and that is that Hillary did not have the women's vote. She had the non-white women's vote, that white women are more or less equally likely to have voted for Trump and for Clinton. Right, so right. so you, you just have to put them all in a category. And if you go down the list, there is great consistency in what sits on the left column and what sits in the right column. Hmm. Okay, so we go forward. How do you think we navigate a country that's divided in the way that 
that you've talked about it being divided. Is there anything in your work, in others' work, um, that sort of suggests this way forward where we can sort of go beyond this natural tendency to say, well, you're like me, I'm gonna stick with you? You know, we all, we should remember, first of all, that change is hard, that changes in the hierarchies of domination are always resisted. Changes um, in the face of evidence, even good evidence, is always questioned. And yet, we change, okay? People did believe that the earth was flat. People mostly no longer believe that the earth is flat. But that was not a simple victory. It may seem simple to us today mm -hmm. when we think about those poor primitive people who could not understand the evidence from the science and know that the earth may look flat, but it isn't flat. We laugh at people now who used to believe that the earth as a planet was at the center of the universe. But we killed people who told us that the earth is not at the center of the universe based on the scientific evidence. And even today, we reject scientific evidence about the specialness of humans. Many people believe that human beings are such a special species that God chose them and put them on the planet for his pleasure. No amount of scientific evidence is going to change those minds. But change does happen because every new generation learns a little bit better and more than the previous generation. And so there are fewer people who don't believe in Darwin today than there would have been 50 years ago. And some institutions take very long. It took the Vatican 350 years to agree that Galileo was right, but eventually they did. Mm -hmm. So the question for us really is, how quickly can we come to the right answers? Not whether we will, because we will. It's just the slowness and the pain and the Sisyphean task of walking back to the bottom of the hill. I always think about the character of Sisyphus, that it's, the hard part is not the pushing the rock up the hill. The hard part is walking down the hill to meet the rock that has slipped down. And on the way down, you have to confront your own vulnerability. You have to confront the fact that this could happen again. Hmm. In some ways, your work is about knowing things about people's minds that they don't know about their minds. So, I mean, maybe in some sense you were, you knew things that the pollsters didn't know. Um, but was there anything that really surprised you? I guess I find it ironic um, that in this election, people said that they want change, that they're fed up with things staying the same in Washington. But I would argue that the, what they actually wanted was no change, that they are frightened of change. So exactly the opposite of what they say they were looking for is what they actually were looking for. I think immigration, business expansions across the globe, the entry of women into the workplace, I think the legalization of gay marriage, many, many civil rights advances. These put the fear of God in people who see that their way of life is being taken away because change is happening. So don't tell me you want change because I don't think that the people who say they want change do. Mm. And yet I believe change will happen. 
It will happen because of the students I see in my classroom. I believe it's going to happen because of who I see on the streets. It will change because of who is the guard of my building. These are examples of change that's coming, and nothing is going to stop that. Mazrum Banaji is the co-author of Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. She's also a professor of psychology at Harvard. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. On our website, we will have a link to some of Mazreen's work, as well as a link to a test that measures your implicit bias. And I can speak as someone who has taken this test, proceed with caution. There was a moment that tells you a lot about this election. It happened in 1992. And it happened behind the scenes at a TV network that was looking to make a little more money, try to diversify its revenue. So the network launched a new kind of show. The show had some elements of a documentary, but it wasn't really a documentary. When it launched, execs crossed their fingers. They needed a hit, and they got one. The show was called The Real World. And the network, of course, was MTV. Tim Wu is a professor at Columbia Law School who has written about that MTV moment as critical in the race to capture our attention, to develop a formula that would press our buttons over and over again. The real world also launched an army of reality TV stars who became part of our lives and in one case was elected president. Wu is the author of The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, it's a pleasure. So we are doing this interview um, in the wake of a kind of stunning election, I think you could say. Um, And one thing about it that was stunning, that was precedent-setting, was the ability of someone who uh, had trained to kind of get your attention on a TV show to then get our attention through politics. How much do you think the sort of TV attention-getting aspect of things uh, was a factor here? (laughs) Uh, It was uh, more than a factor. You know, I think the 2016 election was a culmination of so much of what has happened in the Uh, battle uh, for attention over the last century, uh, displaying all of everything kind of coming uh, together, whether it was the use of social media, whether it was the training in reality television, and the sort of particular understanding that it doesn't really matter if you are, you know, likable or unlikable as long as you're watchable and people want to just see what happens next, that that kind of building of a narrative that keeps people glued turned out to be so important in this election. In the primary, I didn't think it would matter for the general, but then again in the general, the harnessing of techniques that were used by totalitarian states and other times, it, it all kind of came together and uh, produced a really extraordinary result that obviously we're all still talking about. What are the techniques that you feel like, that you would point to as being really important that maybe have been undercovered or underthought about in terms of getting our attention, right? Because I think we think about the normal things like, well, there are three debates and, you know, there this and that, there's acceptance speeches and stuff. But 
but uh, there's conventions. But what what were you seeing, um, having sort of studied the attention grabbing industry? Yeah, I mean a, a whole bunch of things. So one of the things I noticed again is the deep understanding that no publicity is bad publicity, just as long as you get your face out there over and over and over again, uh, repeatedly, that that uh, will let you get your message across. And then pairing that with a, a Trump, Trump's pairing of that with giving voice to people's kind of hidden or, or unspoken fears, hatreds, uh, biases. Uh, it, it's a technique that's been used um, early in the century, usually by uh, more very uh, totalitarian leaders to rise to power by speaking to those kind of feelings. And I think that was more effective than anyone thought, obviously it became more important than any sort of substance. And you put all of that together with the fact that the media itself was so desperate for ratings and had the best show going uh, ever that they covered every part of this to a level which has never been seen before and highlighted every development with the instincts called from reality television or from sports coverage to produce a situation where you could not get away from it. It, it sort of penetrated our, our attentional consciousness in a level which you don't normally see, as I said, outside of totalitarian regimes where they control the state media. You had that face in your face every day, all the time, and somehow it's uh, led where it has. Uh, why did nobody, at least in the U.S., it sounds like what you're saying is nobody in the U.S. running for president, at least, had figured this out before Donald Trump. Why not? I don't think no one has figured it out. I think people have run on hatred and fear before. Giving voice to fear and hatred is something fascists have always done. It's something that Nixon did. It's something George W. Bush did to some extent, especially in the 04 campaign. What was different was the harnessing of the narrative power of reality television, the constant twists and turns, the new accusers, the I'm going to sue you, the, the insults. All those uh, techniques, a constant 24-hour stream of new drama was key to the demands, the hunger of a media that needs constant new stories, something else to get people to click or to watch on. And I think that was truly new, to give up, just become a content machine, the Trump campaign of stuff to, to watch and see, and therefore get these ideas deeper and deeper into everyone's consciousness and ultimately lead to those outcomes. Okay, but do you, do you think if you were on the Trump campaign or you think you would think, well, this Access Hollywood tape doesn't look so good, but, uh, you know, whatever, as long as we're covered <laughs> on the media, that's that's a good day. Because it, it didn't, I mean, yes, it's true, the media is trying to get ratings, but they certainly were not shy about covering things that made Trump look not so great. Right. I No, I agree with that. But for some reason, it, it didn't affect him, obviously, at fundamental uh, levels, and it kept him in the stories. Uh, it, you know, it, it does seem counterintuitive. All of his, most of his advisors say, we need you to be disciplined, you know, to, to uh, c control yourself. But at some level, he understood. Yeah, he uh, Probably knew the Access Hollywood tape yeah. wasn't his best moment, but as long as he was kind of dominating the storylines one way or another, you know, insulting people back and forth. It was his story. And at some level, I think he understood that this would, would work. Uh, and it, you know, it seems very counterintuitive. I mean, who wants, especially the Access Hollywood stuff. And maybe that was the bridge 
too far, although, you know, uh, you at some level cannot argue with success. He survived mm-hmm. that. He turned every scandal into a story that just kept him going. Uh, the deeper point is there's there's a battle for attention that goes on that is different than the battle uh, for for uh, substance, obviously. And Trump, by every possible mean, won the battle for attention and ended up winning the presidency. What is it about us that we respond so favorably or at least that we're so excited by um, the sort of perfect formula that reality TV has happened upon? What is it about whether it's Donald Trump or Kim Kardashian or Paris Hilton or like a long line of people who right. started off? I mean, they may have they may have branched out. Obviously, they did. Mm-hmm. But um, who started off in reality television? What is it about us that we are so captivated um, by that formula? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, at one point, the idea of a celebrity was someone like you know, the Queen of England or someone or a famous scientist like Einstein who were so godlike, kind of beyond us, uh, unreachable, uh, that that people felt that they almost worshipped them. Uh, You know, in the last 20 or 30 years, the leading celebrities are almost the opposite. If they're gods, they're pagan gods. They're prone to embarrassing episodes, drunken fits. Who knows what it is, but the the sort of respectable... uh, interesting characters cannot compete. I mean, everyone, no one thinks Kim Kardashian is some paragon of virtue, but somehow you can't resist knowing, wanting to know what she does next. Same thing with Donald Trump, and it conveys and creates a certain kind of power that we're really starting to understand right now. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Tim Wu, author of the book, The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. You say in this technological world that we live in where you've got so many inputs, radio, television, the web, you know, you've got sort of people following social media all the time, that this is a quote from you. We are at risk without fully knowing it of living lives that are less than our own. Uh, what what started to make you so concerned that the sort of folks who are trying to grab our attention all the time are in some ways, I guess, injuring us maybe? You know, I started noticing uh, that I'd lost control over my own attentional facilities. <laughs> and, you know, I noticed that I would say, sit down to write an email at my computer, and then suddenly a couple hours would go by, and I honestly could not figure out why that was happening, why my hand was moving to click on things, why mm. it seemed impossible to shut down the screen. I think a lot of and, people have had some variation of that experience where you get bored so quickly and you're, right, you mean to be online for five minutes and you're on for a lot longer. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in almost all parts of life, I just started noticing to what degree they are intermediated. You know, you're paying attention to something which is in some ways engineered to keep you wanting more or drive you in a certain direction, essentially to manipulate you. You know, a lot of people who especially have gambling problems will be like, well, I just wanted to make a bet. And then, you know, I kind of got stuck in this vortex. And (laughs) I think that's happening with us 
but with our attention as opposed to our money, where you get kind of caught in these vortexes. And then so how much of your day is really yours? Like, I decided to do this now and did it. it because doing almost anything requires paying attention to it. And so that's what I'm talking about, the breakdown of that kind of control over, over your life. When did companies first realize, you know, in some ways we don't have to sell things to people. If we just get their attention, that's the most important thing. And then we can kind of sell that attention to other people or, you know, we can use that attention right. for really whatever we want. Right. If there's a theme to my book, it's to try to get people to understand that. And I think the presidential election drives it home is that the prior kind of battle to get attention sometimes matters more than anything else that goes on. You know, that's the triumph of Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian is their ability to make you watch them is where they win. So where did that come from? Well, I went searching for the source of the Nile, so to speak. And uh, where I found it is in New York City in the 1830s with the birth of the first tabloid penny press papers. The first papers that had the idea, okay, uh, we're going to dramatically lower our price, almost to free, a penny, and gather a huge crowd with crazy, lurid stories, you know, kind of the reality TV of their times, murder, suicide, uh, gossip, and uh, gather a giant audience and resell it. And I think when that model was born in the 1830s, you have sort of the beginnings of cultural developments that lead to this election, 2016. What makes social media and the internet so much better at getting our attention, if it is better, if you think it is better, um, at getting our attention than, let's say, TV and radio, which were, in their day, also pretty cutting edge? I, I don't think TV is bad at it. I think TV is pretty good. Uh, it persuaded, you, you know, the entire nation to spend untold millions of hours, particularly 50s, 60s, 70s. In fact, people still watch, on average, upward of 1,500 or more hours uh, a year on television. So I would never count out television as uh, the attention grabber par excellence. The main advantage I think the uh, social media and web have is they take advantage of our interest in our friends and family, other people. Uh, that social sphere used to be non-commercial, non-advertised to, but uh, ever since basically AOL and, you know, through Facebook, we have the fact that our family and friends, our acquaintances, which obviously are able to get our attention by just saying, hey, you know, I had a new baby or something, that that is something that has become commercialized. And that is something whose appeal is irresistible in its own way. We care about ourselves and our family more right. than almost anything else. So that that is their special appeal. The last thing is portability, but I'll, I'll yeah, yeah. I think that's obvious. So, having spent so much time thinking about um, the ability of companies of people to grab our attention and figuring out like the perfect ways to press our buttons, and then obviously we we talked about this election. Where do you feel like? Um, we go from here because I, I I think in some ways if if you were a politician thinking about running next time around, you would learn something from this election and think about what works. So one one thing you can learn, I think the darker message would be that 
the nature of celebrity has fundamentally changed and celebrity is driving major political elections and watchability matters above everything, just that raw ability to get people to want to know what you're going to do next, whether or not it's you're reputable or distinguished or have any relevant experience. That doesn't matter. Um, maybe a less dark message might be that if you want to be successful in politics, you do need to give voice to people's deeply held emotions. And, you know, Trump, for better or for worse, did give voice to unspoken hatreds, fears, concerns about about uh, the greatness of the country and, and uh, things like that. You know, his opponent, Hillary Clinton, didn't really, uh, with some exceptions, tap into what people were feeling and, you know, left a lot of people cold. And so, you know, one lesson might need to be you really do have to uh, be able to deliver a sense of hope or some kind of emotional content if you're going to succeed as a politician uh, in, in a sort of mass election. And maybe that's the, the lesson to learn. Tim Wu is the author of the book, The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. He's also a professor at Columbia Law School. Tim, thank you so much. Sure, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks to the people who worked like crazy to put this show together. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. We've got more about all the people that we interviewed on today's show at our website, innovationhub.org, and the interviews themselves are in iTunes. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1